Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Not A Diving podcast. I'm Scuba and don't watch the title. I've been wanting to do one of these for a long time. I'm a big fan of the long form podcast format generally. And while it's fair to say there isn't really a shortage of these, I feel like there's a kind of gap in the market for musicians talking to other musicians about music, about their experiences and kind of comparing notes really on what it's like navigating through life as a musician or as a label owner or as a club promoter or you know just someone involved in the music scene and because of my background uh, we're going to be concentrating primarily on the electronic music scene and the underground dance scene and that side of things. So today as the very first guest on the podcast we have the head of A&R at K7 Records, the curator of the legendary DJ Kicks series and the head of Aus Music, the label that I've contributed to as an artist. It's uh, Will Saul, um, who's also a great DJ and someone I've known for a long time and is someone who has a lot to say and a lot to contribute about underground music and music generally so, um, yeah, it's great to have him and um, he'll be coming up shortly. Uh, just before we get into that, I wanted just to note that after the interview, there is what turned to a bit of a monologue um, concerning a Twitter thread that I posted last week about streaming and uh, Spotify generally, um, or rather the um, boycotting of Spotify and other streaming services. So if you're here for that, because I did refer to this podcast in that Twitter thread, that is after the interview. But I advise you to listen to uh, Will and me talking for an hour or so 
before we get to that part. I also offer a um, an alternative way of thinking about the streaming model, which probably has a million holes in it, and I'll probably get shot down for uh online but i'm 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 ready for that i'm i'm prepared it's a way of thinking about it that has kind of made things a little bit easier for me just sanity wise when looking at those headline payback figures for streams and all that <laughs> anyway so um i think we should probably just move ahead with the main conversation the main bit of the podcast um as i said this is mostly going to be a podcast involving conversations almost exclusively and this is a great one to get started so without further delay here's will saul will saul welcome to the show how are you doing sir i'm good thanks thank you for having me yeah, this is the um, it's the first one, so I'm quite excited, um, which is not something I always say about myself. But um, <laughs> yeah, this 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 time I, I really am. So I got a quick question for you out of the gate, right. which is um, not to ambush you or anything, but my question is: Is the streaming model as bad as everyone says it is? Ooh, um, I think it it really depends who you are and and the kind of music you make, actually, and also probably most importantly the stage in your career you're at. Um, because I think there's a lot of artists that have obviously already established themselves um, that are doing very, very nicely through streaming. Uh, yeah, look, overall, it's probably not fair. It, it's not fair in relation to the percentage that you actually get. It's definitely not fair. But does it mean that artists can't live very well off it? No, it doesn't. A lot of artists are doing very well off it. Uh, I think overall it could definitely be changed and tweaked. And I think, look, essentially, one thing is worth remembering, which shows the model is fundamentally broken uh, at source, is that the vast majority of streaming platforms don't make any money. Spotify is losing right. money. <laughs> so uh, something somewhere, uh, and I have opinions on it, but it, it is not working. Okay, well, let's get into those opinions later on. <laughs> um, so, okay, let's step back a bit. Um, you're obviously um, like pretty well, vastly experienced, really, in in this whole thing. You've been going for about as long as I have, actually. And I guess I yeah. qualify for that for that as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, we're, that's, we're definitely that's vintage. exactly how I feel about we're border, it. We're borderline heritage, I think, to be honest with you, mate. Depending on, yeah, it's been over twenty years for definitely for me, probably for you as well. It's getting on that way for me, yeah, for sure. So, but how would you describe what you do now in the industry, as it were? Well, if my mum's friend asked me, I just say I work in music <laughs> because what I do is is really like. It's it, uh, lots of different stuff. Um, I manage artists. I obviously run and A and R house music. I create DJ kick series uh, and A and R for K Seven. Um, I produce music. Uh, I don't really DJ anymore, although I am DJing on Saturday, which I'm actually quite excited about. It's the first show I've had in nearly two years. Um, nice. Great. I think that's roughly it. Uh, I do a lot of yeah within what I do for for management. It's it's a range of things. I consult for artists purely on music strategy and A and R, and then some artists I manage um, from from top to bottom in a traditional sense. Is that I mean? Is that one of those things that you'd sort of prioritise? I mean, I, I don't mean like in terms of how well you spend your time, but just in your own mind, how you see yourself. Um, that's a good question. I I don't really see myself 
as any of the above, uh, any of those things at once, really, or more than the other. Uh, I, I just, I, I love the fact that I, my day is is different hour to hour in relation to what I'm doing, um, and that definitely keeps my my love for for what I do and for music in general as as strong as it's ever been. Yeah, that's yeah, sounds familiar to me as well, actually. Um, so okay, let's go back right to the start then. So, how did you get into music in the first place? I mean, like. Um, you you grew up in in the West Country, is that right? Yeah, yeah. of England. Just to... so, what was your what was your route in? Uh, so, I mean, I yeah, I grew up just outside Glastonbury, uh, in the middle of nowhere, um, and my folks were definitely. Uh, my mum was very into music and a real range of music, and I played the piano and and various other instruments, sax, tim timpani and, and lots of other double bass lots of other uh, instruments double bass yeah, really double bass. my mum was determined to give me like a really good grounding in music which I will be forever grateful for to be honest with you uh, I didn't necessarily right. love it as a young as a young kid uh, in general like piano lessons were a bit of a, a, a pain in the ass, but fundamentally it did teach me how to, to read and write music um, and my mum was just because I wasn't necessarily loving the the piano. She was like, "Okay, well, we'll try you on this. We'll try you on that." I did enjoy the sax actually. I played in the swing band and, and did that quite quite heavily for about five years. But um, stopped it all really when I was about thirteen, fourteen. Um, took a number of grades on the piano before that, but then just yeah, I guess girls and uh, and sport became more more exciting. Age thirteen, to be brutally honest. Um, <laughs> Quite <laughs> right, yeah, fair. Uh, so I dumped, I dumped the piano as long as soon as I was basically and music in general in terms of structured music lessons. And as soon as I was old enough to basically just say no to my mum, <laughs> which was about thirteen, I think, from memory. That's probably true for yeah, quite a lot of people, I imagine. But yeah, having that grounding, I mean, it was the same for me basically. Like I was essentially forced. Um, and really, looking back on it, I am, I am grateful so. for 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 that but i mean i definitely didn't enjoy it at the time no. so so but so what so obviously you got back in no at some i did stage. yeah so what was it that so it was really during i think i would have been well i've been just about to go into university and i think the one thing that i will be forever grateful to my parents for which was very much the ethos of do what you love and follow what you love uh and and they always sort of supported me in that so um during my, I did a general business degree because I wasn't really sure what I, I loved and what I wanted to do. I, I knew I loved music and, and clubbing and club music, and I was a, a you know a real avid collector of music in my teens. Um, so when when did you sort of, just to jump in? When when did you start going going clubbing then? And where, as and soon where, as I could drive, which would have been about seventeen, and, and at that point I was either driving up to the to Birmingham and going to sort of quite random stuff really it was literally just grab a copy of mix mag and pick whatever event was happening that weekend uh f- from you know miss Mo- <laughs> miss money pennies in birmingham to um, wow, really? yeah, handbag, yeah house. handbag house or going up jeremy here. yes pretty much or going up to say turn mills in london or anything like that that was definitely a, a, an early uh stop off point as well regular that became a real regular haunt um yeah, so when I could drive... Which nights, which nights at Turnmills? Sorry, which nights at Turnmills? Uh, I would go to essentially what would have been the gallery, but the gallery had, um, which was a Friday night, but that had a really... That was Tall Paul, That was it? Tall Paul and uh, just big sort of house music on in the main room. But the, the, you had some, like, you had the Chemical Brothers, you had that whole sort of big beat slash break beat thing was really developing uh, at that time... Um, 
and you used to hear some amazing acts in the back room, and that's where I spent most of my time, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, nice. I really enjoyed that. Terminals was, was great. I used to go there a lot too. I used to go to Heavenly Social on Saturdays. Yeah, I went there a few times as well. It was great. It was great. Yeah. As a club, though, in, in those early days, that it was hard to beat the vibe in there in general. Um, yeah, it was good. And that was that was pre-Fabric, and Fabric yes. obviously was just around the, around the corner yeah. from where Terminals was. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's awesome. So, so you were saying, sorry, before I no, so yeah, I think it was. I had a huge passion for music, and then just did a very general business degree at Royal Holloway, which was effectively in Egham in in Surrey. Um, and I then, in my second year, managed to get a work placement, work experience role at Sony Music. Um, so I would oh, really okay, right? Yeah, so that oh, as part of your okay, so so as part of your business thing, so not so. It, I mean, it was unlinked. So were, you, were you thinking it was unlinked? It right. wasn't through the degree, but I, I was looking at the music industry, and I, I can't remember who actually ended up suggesting that I went for it. It was a friend of a friend or a family friend that suggested, "Hey, there's a work placement going on at at Sony," and I just applied for it and was able to get it. Um, and that was just. You know, that was it, basically, for me. That was, I would travel up there three days a week. I was actually not up there. I was living in Battersea and travelling out to um, Royal Holloway to university and going into London to Great Marlborough Street, where Sony Music used to be, um, three days a week or two days a week for work experience. Not getting paid, just, you know, a combination of... And I started working at the record label that was... In, it was called Incredible. So they, they were doing compilations by people like Giles Peterson and... Um, Lots of really interesting, sort of Trevor Nelson, uh, but then they had an in-house record label that was just doing, that was doing house music, um, and obviously up to, you right. know that then you had access to all of the stuff that was going on within within Sony Music um, at the time. So uh, they then ended up giving me a job uh, when I finished my degree, uh, a full-time sort of product management and A and R job for Sony International. So I also went and did. Wow, that's yeah, that was that. that that's that's a good job coming out of uni. It was. That's, that's one of. It was a great nice. job. So I yeah, grafted that... away for two years for nothing and then they gave me a job at the end of it. So, yeah, absolutely an amazing grounding in essentially how, you know, also doing, um, essentially doing two to three years in total I did for Sony was a, a complete across-the-section grounding in how the music industry worked. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, and then I went from there and set up Simple Records and that, that was where my parents sort of kicked back in, in in the sense that they were like... I did. I was not enjoying the, the position within Sony. I had a psychopathic French uh, boss who was. You didn't know whether she was going to kiss you or, or throw something at you when she came out of the lift in the morning. Um, and it, it, it wasn't a particularly stable uh, vibe. But uh, at that point, I'd made loads of great contacts after three years, and I was like, I want to just set up my own little record label. Uh, and my parents fully supported that. And then I set up. Um, Sony Music. I set up Sony. No, I didn't. Sorry, I set up Simple Re- <laughs> Simple Records, which was my first record label, whilst still working essentially at um, uh, at Sony. And I used and to- that was um, sorry that that like the first Simple Records release is what two thousand and three. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, about then. Yeah, yeah. And um, right, so you're still at Sony. Yeah. And was Simple Records something to do with Fonica as well? I think I've read that somewhere. Is, is that? Uh, no, but uh, when I set up, so I, there was a there was a little window where I, I still worked at Sony, but also I then stopped and essentially I went and got a job uh, to pay the bills with what was it was called Kubler Records on Berwick Street Market, and it was the team that then we then left Kubler Records to set up Fonica Records. So I was part of the team that sort of set, essentially set up Fonica with Heidi and Simon Rigg. Um, but they both right. used to work with me behind the counter. Simon was also running it and doing the buying for it, and that was Kubler Records. So. 
Yeah, that was. Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea you worked there. How, how long were you working there for? I was working oh, a couple of years, uh, and then a couple of years at, at part time at um, Fonica as well. Yeah, it was. Well, I probably I probably came in with Hot Flush 001 and was knocked back because that <laughs> happened to me. Every, that, that happened to me at every shop I where I took Hot Flush 001 into. <laughs> so well, look, that, and I basically went. That was the that was the best grounding for me in terms of across because at that point I, I was still very much into hip hop. Uh, breaks and much more jazzy left field stuff broken beats which was a good time to be in london at that time because that was when all of that stuff was happening at plastic people um and yeah co-op exactly right? yeah so that, that was all going yeah. on at, at, at plastic people and it was a really healthy time for that scene and there was also probably 50 more record shops in london than there are now um, and that whole whole area of Sony was just a, uh, of Sony, sorry, of, of Soho was a complete hotbed for for record shops. Um, yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Like, I, I mean, wh- like when did that? When was the cut off point? Do you reckon? Because I mean, it, it was. You're absolutely right. It's not. It's not an exaggeration that you could go to Soho on a Saturday oh, and spend the whole day just going around different shops. Yeah, at least twenty. <laughs> and there really aren't very many now at all. It's like, well, there's, there's Fonica and and I can't think of many too many others, right? Yeah, uh, there's Sounds of the Universe, Fonica. Um, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And then maybe mm. one or two. I don't know. I don't even know. I haven't been to London in two years now. I don't know whether right. Sister Ray or Music and Video Exchange is still in operation there, but that all, all used to be in there as well. But there was so many other um, great record shops in that area. Yeah, they definitely were. So, so why why did you want to set up a label? Like, what was the um, what was the inspiration behind it? I mean, like, did you? I mean, cause, I mean, certain, certainly from from my perspective, I was I had been into just the idea of record labels like since I was a kid. Like, you know, I love the logos, I love the whole, you know, the sort of branding that came around um, the releases and all that kind of stuff. Was it how much um, how much of that stuff was important to you, or was it just a case of wanting to release music? That was definitely important. I think it was. I loved the idea, probably much the same as you, of, of a kind of creating something that was um, an artistic outlet for, for music, but, but also I liked the whole aesthetic of, of trying to create a really strong image around the label as well. So, yeah, definitely it was a mixture of things, really, but it was also just I, I, I felt at the time that there was, there was a sort of a really good amount of breaks and broken beats that that wanted to sort of be released from all around Europe and the UK and it just it just didn't really there wasn't any labels that were sort of capturing the overall sound that was very musical and interesting and deep at the time so I wanted to try and do something that, that no one else was doing really because it was filling a gap that wasn't really being catered for and so where does Aus fit into that because it was only a, it was like I think a couple of years later that you started Aus. Maybe it was two thousand and six. Maybe the first, the first release on Aus was the. What was the um? What was like the delineation really in your mind between those two things? Well, Simple was very definitely. Actually, ironically, started off as being a breaks and broken beat label, and then as I worked more and more at, uh, at Phonica and got opened up to sort of all the amazing house and techno that was out there, it morphed into being a house and techno label. And then by the time I got to sort of 30 to 40 releases into Simple and I was working a lot with Fink, who I met at Sony, who was also working at Sony, um, he had albums that he was making under a different alias, uh, which was Sideshow, um, and he introduced me to his good friend Lee Jones and he had an album worth of music. He was also a part of an act called My My with Nick Hopner, uh, who he also released on Alison. 
Ah, uh, oh, right. I didn't know that. I didn't know Nick was. Yeah, Nick was, was one half of, of my my, uh, and that's so that's how I met Nick and and Lee and and I just had albums from these guys, but it didn't really fit stylistically to to simple. It was much more experimental and dubby. Um, so I created House really as a vehicle for their music, um, and then over the first few years. I just started, I was very sort of entrenched in a London scene then and, and started to see a number of artists that were coming through that really sort of fitted into the sound again. And ironically, it was quite similar, really, to the sort of broken beats that I started Simple with. But it was then, that stage, it was it was kind of the first sh- shards of post-dubstep that were emerging from people like, you know, Apple Blim and Ramadan Man, which was... David Pearson sounds previous alias Joy Orbison and that was obviously when you were just launching Hot Flush as well not just launching but that was when Hot Flush was developing as well um it was only when we came to prominence yeah that's fair to say exactly and th- absolutely yeah so House had been going for a couple of years and then then I approached those guys to start doing stuff and and that was then when House really sort of kicked into another gear and that, that was essentially um those guys that were trying to that had come from the definitely from the dubstep scene, whether or not they were making dubstep or not, they, they'd come from going to those nights, obviously with you, <laughs> primarily uh, as well at the same time, and and wanted to start making house and techno, and so yeah. then house ended up going from being an experimental label into a house and techno label, <laughs> but it was a house and techno, right. it was a house and techno <laughs> label that that was definitely had a really fresh and unique sound. And I think it was fundamentally, it was House and Techno that was baseline driven. And yep. that, that was, for me, the last time that actually really something, and I'm not saying we just did that, there was lots of labels that were doing it, but that whole sound, there was lots of artists that were producing that sound. That was the f- the last time for me that, that that kind of a new thing, and you actually a new sound has been properly developed. You know what, I have reflected uh, on that um, and increasingly in the last year or two, um, and I'm I'm kind of like conscious of like kind of being <laughs> being an old guy who's <laughs> like like everything now shit. Like, oh, no, and I'm, so I'm really trying to avoid now, that. But it, it, it's not. No, I don't, yeah, I, I I don't mean I don't mean it's shit. I don't mean the new stuff is shit. But like, there's just I I, I completely sort of share that uh, kind of sentiment that that the kind of period that kind of like 20, 2008, 2010 or so or thereabouts was a real kind of like you kind of really had a had a sense that like something really kind of exciting was was happening and may, maybe it's just because we were part of it so it so it felt more like that you know maybe, maybe it is an element of that but I, I but I just think with the with, with that music um and there were there were lots of different kind of facets to it because there was that you know, the, the house and techno influence stuff, and then I was we had the tenth anniversary of the Sepulchre album uh, recently yeah, on that. Hot Flush, and they, and they were doing stuff like you know the kind of like you know, Machine Drum had his like yeah. kind of like footwork influence and all that kind of stuff, and Duke, you know, all that shit, and like you know there was just it just felt like there was something really kind of exciting happening, you know, uh, and I haven't. Yeah, in the same way you're saying, I haven't, I haven't had that feeling really. Well, since then. Also, don't forget, dubstep was essentially a brand new thing in the way that that was written. Obviously, dub has been there forever, and it was, you know, that as a sound was hugely indebted to that. But what they were, that whole, that was a completely new thing, and I think that was obviously before 
what you could arguably classify as post-dubstep now, which is all of those micro scenes that were coming off dubstep. I think dubstep and all yeah, that followed, I mean, I think... It, it is the last time that something, a genuinely a whole new rhythm uh, and the subgenres from it has kind of really happened. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think like, I think really like what, what's, what's called post-dubstep is really, was it was a reaction to like the sort of turn that dubstep took around 2008, 2009-ish, or maybe even before that, when um, certain producers from the other side of the pond, shall we say, uh, <laughs> yeah. without wanting to put too fine a point on it, got hold of it and did stuff to it that personally I was like, not mega happy with, Ruined frankly. Ruined it. Uh, well, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, and... Like the kind of original, I guess, ethos, it's certainly what I thought I saw as the ethos of dubstep was that you could actually do quite a lot of different things with it. And there were there were quite a lot of different sides to the initial dubstep scene. And that's what sort of post-dubstep, as it were, I mean, I always hated that term, to be honest, but like it, it serves a purpose. Same. Like that's what that's what post-dubstep actually kind of was the continuation of. Yeah. You know, it was like there was there was loads of different things going into it. There's House and Techno, there was, you know, or, or in fact, those, those two things probably should be separated really because like dubstep slash techno thing was its own little subgenre in in of itself you know and obviously the stuff that you guys were doing was much was more house influence and it was i I was i was a big fan of it at the time and obviously i released on house as well so like you know the whole the whole thing was just it was just as i said like it was just an exciting time to be a part of the whole thing it was and look i'm sure a large a large dollop of that is because we were in it and enjoying it very much at the time and that was when we were you know really making a lot of music. Well, you're still obviously making a lot of music, but when we were, I think, probably discovering a lot of stuff for the first time in terms of yeah, business, that's, that's... life, um, and, and you know, all of the stuff that goes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. So just I just want to go back to the start of Aus, though, quickly, because what I, I went back to the... Um, the uh the catalogue today in in doing a little bit of prep for this and what struck me was that the first few releases for each one you had a really great remixer yeah on it on each one you had eftermin matthew johnson prince thomas john height john tiara um i'm guessing that was a like a conscious sort of strategy to get the label launched yeah look I, actually interestingly i probably the most important record i've ever released was the 10th record on simple which was essentially our it, simple would have gone bust if that hadn't properly connected and it was it was a record of mine i wish i could claim that it was my original that connected but it wasn't <laughs> it was <laughs> right. it, it was a it was a remix by infusion who were an australian sort of prog breaks act at the time um and their remix really did connect and it sold a lot of records vinyl uh, probably three to five thousand which then actually wasn't that much, but it was enough for us to, to do quite well. But also, well, I mean, now, now it's now it seems just like ridiculous. It does, right? it does. But th- th- then, no, that don't don't forget. Then there was no digital, so at all, not not yeah, even iTunes. Course. So it, it was um, that was everything. And the thing that you also got a lot more of then was compilation licenses because there's a lot of commercially released compilations, and it got a lot of compilation licenses. And that. that in those days, those licenses were five hundred to a thousand pounds a pop. So that record single-handedly saved the label because we'd released sort of ten records up until that point that had already done quite badly. <laughs> um, and whilst we got a lot of media attention for the wonderful aesthetic that I was trying to create with Simple, um, 
they were all a bit too abstract and, and not really dance floor focused enough. So I learned a lot from the fact that if you do get a remix that is really strong from an artist that can sell, that can connect and really place something on the dance floor, you can get away with being a lot more experimental and interesting on the other side. So that definitely taught me that a well-placed remix um, from a business perspective can really uh, help the release. And I, I've, I've very definitely followed that through throughout and have done throughout the rest of uh, everything I've done in the sense that you have to be very careful getting the right remixes is, is actually takes a lot of thought because as I've also learned through getting burnt, you can pay way too much for a remix. Often a remix artist doesn't necessarily deliver on, on the same level that they would for their own music for a variety of reasons. And that's not a criticism of artists. That's just the reality. Um, so you you have to really pick the remixer carefully to, for it to make sense from a business perspective, um, but also from an artistic perspective and a, and, a, and a creative perspective, an artist that you think will do amazing things. I'd, I would often pick a remixer, for example, that I knew was going to essentially probably lose money in terms of what you'd spent for them, but sometimes a remixer can then also open up other press possibilities and uh, different avenues that, that set you apart. So... Remixes are really, really important. It has been a really important part of um, my record labels for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's something that you can, particularly with a new label, um, it's something that you can use, you know, to to you know, build the brand for one of a better 100%. word. Exactly, hundred percent. So we definitely did that so, with Al's, <laughs> and and those those release those remixes, John Tahada, uh, John Dahlback, um and all the people that we work with definitely played an important part of the evolution of the label. But then, so ironically, we, then it, <laughs> sorry to jump in. Then, ironically, since at a certain point, I've really not done very many remixes actually, and 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 the record labels have been more driven by um, original artists. But I think that's when you get to a certain size as a record label, then you, you you can really pick and choose who you're working with on an artistic level for the original music less uh, and that 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 means there's less need to work with with remixes yeah fair enough the question i was going to ask you is how much is uh what, what's the most you ever paid for a remix Ooh, uh, i've never paid that much for a remix to be honest with you. i've definitely spent at least two grand on a remix but that actually probably in the bigger scheme that's quite a lot for, for an independent record label two grand is you shouldn't really spend much more than that for a remix as an independent record label the majors spend a lot more but two, two grand i'd say yeah, I mean, if it works, then it's it's worth that. Definitely, right? yeah. It pays back 10 times. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, um, right. I want to talk about DJing because I first came across you, I think, as a DJ. I don't think I even knew you were running Simple um, or else at the time. I think I just read about you as a as a DJ. So, so what, what, how do you... Um, well, how, how did you get into it for, um, to start with? I mean, was it something you were doing from really early on? And then... I guess the second part of the question is like, how does DJing support what you do with labels when you're, uh, when you know, when you were doing the kind of stuff that you were doing with, you know, Simple and Alice in the early days? Like, how does being a DJ like support that? Yeah, I got into it through just through buying turntables, age sixteen, saving up, buying some turntables, just because I wanted to be. I'd probably seventeen, really. It was it was shortly after going clubbing for the first time and seeing people mix records. And just wanting to try and do that, that was just, that became everything to me in terms of being more than able to just collect music, being able to blend music and 
that that was mm. yeah a revelation so saved up what turntables uh, and then that all went hand in hand with sort of moving to london to go to uni and starting my own little nights in and around soho when i worked at at sony really um I had a little residency at Bar Rumba that was <laughs> the warm up to the warm up for Giles Peterson's night. So it was it was effective. Oh, really? It was, okay. it was effectively <laughs> five, literally as people finish work, five till seven before. That was on Tuesdays, right? I can't, no, no, I was doing. That's that's how it is. Was it that? that was it that? Yeah, night? That's I, how it is. I was doing yeah. it on a Friday or Saturday. Might it might? I can't even remember. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I can't remember either. Maybe I used to. I know because the Tuesdays was um. Was oh, it Tuesdays was the deep house night. No, Thursdays was Melheads and Tuesdays was the deep house night. And I can't remember what the name of it was. I remember, um, I, I do remember. remember. Maybe Giles was maybe Giles was on Saturday. Yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, so there was it's another night. Really there was another night that came after us that that was then the warm up to Giles Peterson's night, or, or and that then started at, at effectively eleven. So they they squeezed two nights for effectively separate promotions in before before he started. Um, right. And yeah, that was just that was me playing for two or three hours every every week. Um, and I did lots of sort of little parties that lost a lot of money <laughs> and just invited my friends and and then slowly... Well, then I won Music Magazine Bedroom Bedlam at, at university, so I would have been about 18. Oh, right. And that... I think I did know that, actually. Yeah. yeah wow. Just, okay, instant fame, right? Well, kind oh of. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I thought it was, um, but that was... that. It didn't really do a great deal other than enabled you to put in that little bit when you sent out... Because in those days, you would send out mix CDs to promoters to try and get work because there was also... I didn't even really have an email address, so you just have your mobile number on the, the mix CD. And if you could put in, effectively, a a press clipping from you'd put in your flyers for nights you were doing and a little press clipping of music magazines um bedroom bedlam winning entry that was going to give you a little bit of a leg up <laughs> in relation to getting a gig somewhere so that was what i'd sent to people at fabric and to uh carl clark who was the promoter at um electronica which was that backroom at turn mills and they all started giving me little gigs um off the back of of bedroom bedlam and 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 then as soon as I started the label, um, Simple, then you obviously had more to shout about. So you started to get bookings off the back of that. What was on your bedroom bedroom mix? Do you remember? Like what kind of stuff? It, it was it was kind of a mixture of, of what would have then been classified as progressive house. So, yeah, um, I'm trying to think. And Sasha and Digweed. Kind of, but slightly more housey, like era. Circulation Records. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Man, so Circulation were great. Yeah, that, Absolutely great. that kind of thing. But they're mixed mixed with breaks. So sort of the more new school, progressive side of breaks. So labels like Marine Parade uh, and Rennie Pilgrim's label. Um, I can't even remember the name of it. Bushwhackers label, Plank. And yes, yeah, sort of quite a, a groove-driven breaksy sound rather than actually a, a, a sort of a drop-driven break sound. Um, so yeah, 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 that was that, that was that was that was the better the better break sound. It was, and that, that, that's what's back in a big way now in terms of that sort of rolling breaksy sound is is really I'm hearing it everywhere at the moment. Yeah, I think Bicep have um, definitely helped that. Played a part <laughs> yeah, big part. That. Yeah, big part. So then, like. 
but then what was your and well so I'm, I'm assuming it just then kind of slow, gradually snowballed from playing at fabric to playing bigger shows yeah. and that, that sort of stuff great. yeah and i was releasing my own music on simple and, and house a little bit as well so yeah that that all sort of combined and, and helped slowly develop a career but like for the for the large part of that i was also still working part-time at, at phonica uh and any other little bits and pieces that I could find to, to pay the rent. So, yeah, it was it was definitely um, supplemented with with regular work. And then, yeah, the, the the second part of my question, which was like, I've always found that um, that being a DJ and yeah, and actually doing that sort of in a, a fairly serious way can be really beneficial um, in in building the you know building the following of a label and the two things sort of like are kind of mutually helpful to each other i mean like have you have you found that too and like i mean how how important do you think like you, how do you thought how important do you think that like being a sort of front man as it were is in in running a, a small label like like um like simple announcement yeah i think look it, it definitely helped just the, the fact that you're sort of very definitely entrenched in a scene uh, and meeting people hearing people play uh playing on the same lineups as as a lot of the artists that you're trying to sign and work with that's pretty crucial i think just being immersed in something for the development of a record label when it when it starts when it really develops i think is pretty crucial um I don't. Well, of course, you, you could do it w- without doing that, but I think that that immersion in a scene definitely enabled me to meet. You know, when I met Laurie Appleblim uh, f- through playing at his night in Bristol, he then started giving me music. He introduced me to David Pearson Sound, um, and I met a lot of. And then who, who then introduced me to Harry Midland, and all of that sort of introduction process of meeting people and becoming friends with people was was a really big part of ours for sure and and also something that for, for me I will always hold on to as, as one of the happiest times of um my life in terms of running a record label and, and meeting lots of like-minded people and those kind of relationships were, were wonderful that was my 20s and, and into my early 30s to be honest with you um was there a, I mean you've already mentioned the uh simple records 10 release was there a key release um from around that period that you'd pick out we did uh, a compilation called all night long on um on ours i was actually looking funnily enough knew, knowing i had this interview i was also looking on discogs reminding myself of the music that i've released over the years and, <laughs> yeah right and, i do that as well yeah, yeah. T- t- 2009 was when we released um the, an all night long compilation and one of the eps from it, it was a mix cd so i mixed one cd and and then the rest was just tracks that separates but one of the eps was was a three tracker that had uh, a track from apple blim and, and ramadan man called sula sabla um it also had a track by martin called for lost relatives and, and and pearson sounds first record which was called indelible um and that that was the first time he released under that name he also did something on that compilation under the name Ramadan Man, obviously on the same EP with with Apple Blim. So that was definitely when um, that sort of turned a lot of heads because it was a real hybrid of of, of techno and and house and broken rhythms. Um, and not long after that, Apple Blim and Ramadan Man then did that Void Twenty Three track, which had a, a Carl Craig re-edit on it, and that that was a definite game changer in the sense that it sounded like nothing else on earth. Still does, to be honest with you, sounds like nothing else out there, um, and still absolutely does the business when you play it out. And it's just one of those timeless 
totally otherworldly records. So Apple and Ramadan Man were definitely, a, in general, Apple, I would say that Laurie, Apple Blim, without Laurie, I wouldn't have, well, not wouldn't have, but he was so integral. I was good friends with him at the time, and he definitely, um, he was really sort of ahead of his time in terms of what he was doing musically with his label, Apple Pips, at the time as well. And I don't think Laurie gets enough credibility for, for what he's done and what he does, but he was integral to many things, definitely for me, without. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think he's... He's just underrated Massively. generally. His contribute his contribution has been underrated. I mean, obviously having been involved with, you know, Skull Disco and then like you say, Apple Pips and like, you know, just I mean he was a great DJ as well. Really, really great DJ. Under one of the best. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um you didn't do a lot you the music that you were making around that time i mean it didn't make much of an appearance on it certainly not on ours right that, that's not I'm, I'm correct no you are that. yeah you're absolutely correct and it's probably actually one of the only regrets i have is not doing more of my own music around that time but i was so immersed in the label and releasing other people's music that actually i've often my own music has often taken a bit of a back seat to that in many ways and but that kind of changed with the close project yep and am I am I right in saying that that was part of your sort of entry into into K seven? Yes, is that, is that right? Exactly. Just... And I, I reminded me that you, you tried to sign that record as well to Hot to Hot Flash, if you remember. That it was. <laughs> I mean, I was I was trying to sign everything. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. Yeah. Well, any record that I had something to do with, anyway, because obviously I did. Yeah, you, you uh, I, I worked with you on a track. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. So yeah, no, that that. That definitely that that was my entry into K Seven. So they signed that album um, as, as and me as an artist as close to K Seven. And then at the same time, I did a, a deal, or not long after, did a deal to to, to bring Aus into K Seven. Um, and that okay, let's just put, put that to one side for a moment. Um, just just talk about the close project yeah. for a moment for uh, for a little bit because I mean, I as I mentioned, I. I contributed, but it was it was a it was a very much a kind of remote thing. We were passing stems back and forth. I don't really know a lot about how the rest of the project came together. So, so yeah, do you want to yeah enlighten? It, it was fundamentally, and I kind of regret that I hadn't just called it a, a Will Saul album at, with lots of sort of features and collaborations. But I didn't like the idea of of taking credit for um, a lot of collaborations under my own name, to be honest with you. And I liked the idea of creating an album that was. Uh, was 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 definitely more than 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 just me because it was obviously um, there was lots of collaborations on that record um, and I liked the idea of trying to create a live show around it which I did with actually with um, Al Story who who is Second Story uh, Al, was Al Tourette's, um and he was a drummer in the live show that we did we did an audio visual show which which toured around a little bit. And launched at Fabric and did various festivals and bits and bobs. Um, essentially, it was too expensive to be a success uh, because that's often the problem yeah. with with live shows. I've had a similar experience myself, and yeah, you really have to make it like cost effective in a way because, like, yeah, you especially in the, in the kind of early period of touring a show like that, you've just got to play a lot of shows, yeah. and if you're losing money on every show, then it can get it's too yeah, much. Well, as you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'd sunk a lot of money into the into the visuals and developing it, and then rapidly realized that there needed to be three to four people to tour it and it was just like whoops um definitely <laughs> ran a little bit too fast with that before it was able to walk properly so 
yeah, that, that that was a very vital learning process for me in terms of going on to manage artists, actually. But um, yeah, the, the whole project was great. It was signed to, to K7, um, and that was my entry point into K7, really. And then not long after, about a, well, about a year or so after that, um, the Close Project came out and, and Alf was part of K7, that the, the A&R that signed me to K7 left um, and the MD of K7 Horst approached me to take over as, as A&R for, um, for K7. Uh, I'd, I'd also done a, a, a DJ kick. So what, what year, what year was that? What year was that? Ooh, it's about eight years ago now. It's yeah. Eight and a bit years ago. Um, eight to nine years ago is when I first started working with K7. So they, st- so you could be, and you came in straight as, as head of A&R for the, for the whole for the whole label is that, is that yeah is that right? exactly so um that i did the album with them then i did a dj kicks for them as an artist and then not long after that they offered me the head of a&r spot um i didn't give myself a DJ so that kicks. was a um <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, i do like to um, make quite clear it wasn't a little like <laughs> welcome will and here's a dj kicks for yourself <laughs> thanks for coming out um <laughs> right yeah okay so maybe Describe to us a little bit, like what K Seven is is like, because obviously K Seven is is an indie, but it's it's a much bigger indie than than well than ours. Yes. <laughs> so, um, like, what is the what was the um what was the kind of adaption period that you had there, and like what I mean, how did you find it? Has it changed much over the years? Like, what's the what's the deal there? Well, K Seven, we we started working with K Seven because we wanted to start doing a lot more albums, um, and. We wanted to benefit from their structure in terms of their team. Uh, also that, up until that point, it always been me and, and then me and my wife for a little while. Um, and, yeah, I just wanted to be able to focus a little bit more on making music um, and also just wanted the economies of, of scale and size that, that K7 bought in terms of the relationships with DSPs like Spotify and iTunes. Um, and the the marketing team and the clout that they had and the people that they had. And, and that was the point of me doing the deal with Alice. Um They've always been very heavily focused on, not heavily focused, but that they, they've become notorious for the DJ kicks, which has obviously been a huge success for them and was completely groundbreaking as a concept when they started it over 25 years ago. Um, they were the first people that really tried to showcase the DJing, the DJ as, as a, an art form in terms of more than just playing other people's music that the obviously the concept of of dj kicks is that you produce as the artist compiling the dj kicks your own track that is unique to that mix many artists do more than just one track um but it's supposed to be a hybrid of a of a dj mix and an artist album that was the the intention of horse when he created the series and that at the time was totally unique um now obviously it's it's that's the majority of mixes is, is a combination of the, the two things. But for many years, it was totally on, on its own in, in the way that it approached that. Um, yeah, so that it was always known for that. It, I think, if I'm honest, it's as a as a label, uh, K7 has, has, has struggled to escape the, the, the fact that that has been so successful. That's what K7 is mostly known for. Um, I was brought in to try and change that and, and, and sign more artists over the years, which we definitely did and we have. And there was already a lot of great artists that had signed and worked with K7, obviously well before me. Um, and also they've always been known as a great uh, label services distribution company, which they are still very successful for. So K7 is a big operation of, of many different 
sort of facets. Yeah, how many functions. how many staff? How many staff is it sort roughly? Thirty to forty across three or four different countries. Yeah. yeah. So, but and you've but you've never worked in the head office is that right you've, you've never no moved, yeah it's in but it's based in berlin it's right? based in berlin there's a london office and there's a new york office uh I, I had just moved to to somerset from london and my first child was on the way when they offered me the job and i didn't want to move back to london or to berlin at that time so that was a bit of a deal breaker for me and they were okay with that thank thankfully yeah fair enough and um yeah so i mean so what kind of a sort of culture shock was it moving there and, and taking on that that kind of responsibility because obviously you know as you say it's a it's a you know it's it's a label with a um with a with a serious history with a you know and a reputation and you know if as you just alluded to that you were basically charged with kind of reviving its fortunes to an extent as at least in terms of like you know maybe reputationally in terms of the way the ANR had had been uh, in in the sort of pre- previous few years, how how was that in terms of a like I said a a sort of like was there was there a culture shock involved or was it something that you took to just immediately? Uh, I, I wasn't necessarily charged with entirely sort of it was it was functioning just fine. Um, I just think that they wanted to try and bring in more more artist led projects, um, and yeah no I took to it fine it was it was definitely because obviously I'd been you know A&R was essentially what I did with Owls I think the thing that I struggled with mostly was actually separating Owls from K7 uh, in the sense that I had to find stuff that that set, sat differently to, to Owls and worked differently to Owls because obviously Owls was then a part of K7 as well so um, that yeah that that was the challenge it was it was one that I, I was fine with and, and one that over the years I, I definitely um navigated but no there was no problems with it. I've had a great eight years there um and curating the DJ kicks has has been an absolute joy um not something I've struggled with at all it, it you know I don't think many people would struggle with it I think you're just blessed to get the role um it's it's then just yeah it, it's had challenges in the sense that the challenges of A&R I think are more linked to the, the overall moving landscape of the electronic music industry in the sense that you you realize very quickly with dj kicks that actually having a big ticket selling artist is not does not equate to necessarily having a big record selling artist um and that became quite a thing about five or six years ago we started to see as, as record sales cd sales started dropping a lot of artists with huge social media followings in the early days of you know facebook that that did not equate to uh, record sales necessarily that's that's really interesting so and uh, you know, the next question i was really going to ask and the, the area i wanted to get into was like you know how the how the model has changed i guess you know because you're going back to you know the early simple records and everything is vinyl there's no digital it's yep. just like literally like how, how many can we press and how many can we sell yep. and then you know getting to k7 it's like the reason i moved to k7 is our relationship with dsp so that's like a fundamental change really isn't it so yes and like so that's that's an interesting thing that you, you mentioned there was a change a noticeable changeover in terms of like how predictable you could like what well, the, the, the degree of predictability that you know that different artists might have with a dj mix specifically so like mm. Did you think, can you like expand on that? Like how, I mean, what do you, how do you explain that? I think it was just that, look, just because of, like, there's, a, there's a, a number of big DJs that we'd worked with over the years that arguably they, they did great mixes, but 
not a number, a couple of DJs specifically that have done great mixes that haven't necessarily equated. They've done fine. Don't get me wrong on DJ Kicks. We've not really had any failures at all over the years, but they haven't sold as many as you would think in regard to their social media following. Um, and what you quickly learn is that album selling artists and uh, are very different to, to, to ticket selling artists in terms of what they can sell for a record. Um, so... For example, I'll, I'll give I'll give examples. It, it, there's no disrespect to them. They're, they're, their mixes did well, and they're great DJs. But Seth Doxler and Jack Master, for example, you would look at their social media following at that time with, with Facebook and everything else, and you think these guys are going to sell more than any other artist we ever worked with. But it just doesn't work like that because those two guys specifically hadn't released a lot of recorded music, so. Their fan base are people that come to gigs. They're not necessarily people that go out and buy a DJ kicks or buy an album. Um, and actually, those two things probably sound that sounds slightly ridiculous, but they are actually quite different. Um, a younger crowd, for example, will go and hear those guys play at that time, but they wouldn't have necessarily gone and bought a DJ kicks. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, so let me just let me just clarify something here. Like to um, with with DJ Kicks, like obviously initially this was a CDs like uh, focused on heavily on the CD format, yep. and like to what extent? And and they are available on streaming they are, now. Yeah. Um, so, like, was that a was that a significant factor here? Like, with the, I mean, the decline of CDs generally in terms of the way the audience developed. Do you think? Um, look, the decline of CDs has definitely been something we've hugely felt. Obviously, that's been slightly offset over the years with digital and the, the rise in digital and its importance in, in terms of it hasn't made up the the numbers in terms of CD sales and profitability for sure. And the market has massively constricted, restricted over the years. Well, I mean, the, the, the CD model was like the most um, <laughs> exploitative, I think, probably in history of, of the uh, the music buying public well yeah look yeah if you're looking at it in terms of what the cd costs to make in relation to um the profit margin on it yes i would say so um but you know it was then you're talking about all of the the facets of looking then back at uh, businesses like sony music and and why they created the the cd uh, and the, the, the oh, absolutely! The I mean, I was able to... <laughs> in relation to to being able to explain uh, then why they they own filmmaking and and record labels, it's it's essentially to to, to own the the repertoire that is played on their devices. So you could, yeah, you could you could really spend a long time discussing that. It's fascinating to me. Um, but 
Yes, the CD. The CD, but in, the CD but was a dream of, for the record. For the record industry, definitely. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, like, I mean, like, we we just caught the, like, the we, very end of it yeah. with Hot Flush. We did a few a few albums on CD. I bet you where did with Mount Kimby. You could, if you if you could sell like you know ten thousand CDs or whatever, that was just the, like the profit margin was just Wonderful. just mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But but what? But I mean, my question really was more about um, the like the way in which the kind of new generation of like club goers, you know, the people who are buying the tickets to those, you know, Jack Master and Seth Chocolate shows, yeah. for example, like how they were consuming music. Like, I mean, I, 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 I don't know this for sure, but I, I very much imagine that the remaining CD market certainly, well, I mean, certainly up to a few years ago, maybe, well, up to very recently, because I think there has been a sort of resurgence in CDs recently in a kind of like, you know, niche kind of kitsch level. But in, certainly in terms of like the, the way the, the CD market declined, those people who were still buying CDs were not the people who were going to see Seth Trogster, you know? Correct, um, yeah. And DJ. So, so yeah, so how, how was that? Yeah, I think, tell, me, tell me about the, that shit. I think also for, for the DJ kicks a big part of of our um model is also the 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 vinyl that goes along with it um and i think the the dj kicks exclusive track or tracks is a big part of that vinyl package and i think for for dj's that don't make their own music that don't have a fan base of people that buy their records um a, a jackmaster vinyl lp it is not going to be supported and bought by the shops and in turn the people that go to those shops as heavily as it would, for example, an artist that has an incredible track record of selling albums. Mm. Um, so that the retailer is going to get behind the artist that is definitely going to sell records and has a track record of selling records. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is something which, um, which you learn if you're, you know, if you're a label releasing vinyl, absolutely. this is something which is, which has become, you know, increasingly important as as that market has contracted. And I know everyone talks about like the resurgence of vinyl, but the reality is that, you know, vinyl DJ focused vinyl sales have continued to contract. And the reality with shops is like the first question they ask is like, well, what's this artist's track record on the format? Yeah. You know, which is not something which you'd immediately think would be significant, but like, I mean, it absolutely is. It absolutely is, and it still it forms the bedrock of a lot of my decision making in relation to DJ Kicks. Is does the artist that I'm working with have that pedigree, um, that ability to, to to sell records? Because the market has constri- has restricted and, and got smaller. Therefore, you know, those decisions are even more important because you definitely have to be working with an artist that has that track record, to be brutally honest. Um, now you also factor in other things like streamability, for sure, in terms of their, you know, their monthly followers on Spotify, for example. That is an important factor of looking at, at how we can budget a release. Um, and that is the reality. Do you think there might be more crossover there between ticket selling artists and and artists who perform Definitely well now, streaming. yes, for sure. But then again, you're not going to necessarily have an artist that that streams particularly that that that, that does well at shows that that streams really well. They they have to have a, a a catalog of music that has built up a connection, and then then the algorithm is twisted, obviously, by the fact that you have to get into editorial playlists to get your monthly followers up. So that's then a whole other thing that, that is... Well, that's the thing. I mean, streaming numbers are not always what they seem no, for, that, they're not. for that exact reason. And then getting on that kind of editorial ladder, as it were, is basically the kind of key thing 
to those numbers. And um, yeah, I think there's there's probably quite a few examples of of artists who you know who look good in terms of their monthly listeners and 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 that side of things, but couldn't sell a ticket anywhere in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely, it works both ways for sure. So, um, having moved to K Seven and taking your labels there, I've got to ask you: have the, Were there any compromises that you had to make in terms of the way you r- were running? Running your labels, I mean, as opposed to you know, I'm, I'm no doubt as as you know as A and R for for K Seven, it was there was a, an element of a kind of committee thing going Definitely. on there with terms of what got signed. But like, but in terms of house, like, what did that? What kind of impact did that have? Very little, actually. Um, I would say none in terms of how A and R the label. There's never been any pressure from from K Seven to, to A and R in a certain way. So that's always been something I've been really grateful for, and why we've ca- carried on working together for eight years. Yeah, that's. That's good. I mean, I have to say that when when you move when you when you made that move, I was in a sort of fairly similar position in the sense that we were kind of feeling feeling the pinch in terms of, I guess, resources and wanting to do bigger projects and um, just feeling the need to just have a bit more input. And and I didn't do any one of those deals in the end. And the reason that I didn't, I think, was I was basically just paranoid about <laughs> about the potential for. Yeah. Um, someone telling me telling me what to do and i mean that's that's essentially my, i spend my life i'm um, in in terror of someone giving me direct instructions to do to, to do anything frankly <laughs> yeah but. well that that is definitely i mean it was a slight culture shock in relation to to working for k7 on on an AI, an AI side of things that i had targets and, and and budgets and pressure to to perform uh that was definitely a culture shock but um because I'd come from being essentially, you know, my own boss for many years. But so I, I know where you're coming from in that respect. But um, actually, I didn't get that pressure in relation to ours. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's great. So with um, on on the K seven side, returning to that, give me a give me a few examples of of projects that you've really that you're really proud proud of in in your work on at the Anna side of that K seven. Lots of them over the years. I mean, um, there's two that I'm working on now, which I'm very proud of, and those have been very much development projects in terms of working with artists from their first ever music, getting it to the point that it's it's actually sort of ready to, to be released. And that's James Alexander Bright, um, who's a singer-songwriter, and San Junes, who's uh, an incredibly gifted uh, pianist, and she's also an incredible electronic musician as well. So those two for sure. Uh, and then you start going back into um, <clears throat> acts like we we did albums with Michael Mayer and um, Audion, which is Matthew Dears, um sort of alter ego. Uh, Dominic Yulberg uh, is another album that's really connected well. Portable. Um, I'm struggling to remember other things that I've done now over the years. Um, what have we done recently? That's a, a little glimpse. I can't remember, mate. Bad brain. Yeah, no, I, I, I always, I always blank when getting put on the spot. <laughs> no worries. Um, I mean, that's a, I'm that's a pretty now, good mate. list. You've. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, that's a pretty good list that you've you've given already. Yeah, there's a, a few. Google there. away, and we can I can ch- chop this out and jump back in when you've when you've come up with some more. But yeah, I mean, essentially. Yeah, my my A and Ring is 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 the DJ kicks as well for um, for, for K Seven, obviously. So that's we'll do five. So what's your top? What's your what are your top three DJ kicks? Just to put you on the spot again. Um, I think with with DJ kicks, the ones I'm most proud of are 
definitely Moody Man because it was his, his first commercially released mix CD and, and something that I was really proud to be able to, to make happen. Um, the the Cozy one, which is the 50th, um, that was a wonderful one. Uh, my first one, which was Actress, um, I was really happy to do that. I think those three probably just for those reasons, but I've done loads over the years. How was uh, working with Moody Man? Yeah, it was. It, it was very definitely an experience. <laughs> okay. Do you want to expand on that at all? Um, it was. Look, he, he's his own boss, obviously, and he he very definitely did his own thing. And and actually, to be honest with you, there was almost no contact with him at any point. He was very definitely. Once I'd got the deal over the line, and it was the deal was right for him. He went away and did it and delivered it, and and that was that. It was. Um, I think more than anything, it was just, you know, I've got a big list of artists that I'm I'm constantly reaching out to to see if I can get a DJ Kicks to work. It's mostly about constantly knocking on their door and then the timing being right for them as artists. Um, you could knock on the same door for two or three years and they'd be just be like flatly no. And then they'll hit a point in their career where it works for them in relation to albums that they're doing and their touring plans and what they want to do and suddenly it connects i've got one coming out next year that is very definitely uh on the same level as as moody man in terms of it's his first commercially released mix cd he's a legend um and it's one i've been chasing for all the whole eight years i've been doing um k7 so that that's probably actually one of the ones i'm most proud of but i can't tell you who it is <laughs> all right well that's <laughs> next that's year basically no use to us okay? ne- next <laughs> next summer that comes out all right, we'll do do another podcast next time. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about it. Um, there's one more area I just want to get into before we finish, and it's a bit of a um, oh, it's got a bit of an open ended one. So let's 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 see how we go on with it. And that's really just the future of of labels. And basically, I mean, well, I mean, the the, the kind of death of labels has been predicted for for a while now. Um, and that's the kind of narrative which has been kind of rumbling on. And in my view, it's definitely exaggerated as a as a concept. But what what do you what do you what do you predict? I guess for the the the, the record, the kind of the model of a record label releasing people's music and you know contributing to their career in the way that labels traditionally have, for better or for worse. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. There's definitely not. I don't think there's a as a right answer in terms of where it will go. I, I, look, record labels have fundamentally always been essentially the marketing vehicle for the artist, um, and they should be able to provide that platform. Um, and that's not all necessarily money spent. That's reputation that they have, fan base that they have, um, perception, um, credibility in whatever area you want as a as an artist that doesn't necessarily mean that it's credible for other people but it might give what you do as an artist credibility in the area of music that you make i think all of those things i think if you're going and and also you know reputation in relation to the really important piece of the puzzle is is how you have that conversation with the person i.e the retailer selling your music and I think a record label's reputation and, and catalogue does stand for a lot when you're having that conversation as a record label about a new artist. Um, and I think without that, um, and you just go to, we're talking for new artists here to begin with, there's very little, you can create 
an essentially an album deal for an artist with a distributor without a record label but how does that distributor position that artist uh, in the mind's eye of the of the retailer and and how do they sell that artist into the retailer i think the record labels what a record label brings there is 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 quite significant um I think obviously for big so, established artists, that's less of a concern, and you could have that that deal with a distributor to set up a, a distribution deal around an artist's album without a record label, and, and the, the record label is less important at that point. But I think definitely for new emerging artists, a record label is important. So I mean, when you say retailer, there retailer, there you're really referring to in this day and age to streaming platforms that's basically what it comes down to yeah uh, uh, uh yes essentially uh, obviously if you're on a record label that releases vinyl then you do also have someone selling those records into the shops for you but i think that's very definitely uh, which does still count for something in terms of the, the reputation of the record label in terms of the record shop is important as well um but yes, essentially, it, it counts for something at, in those conversations with with DSPs. And this and this returns us to our initial conversation about the um, the um, uh, well the streaming model and its um, propensity to be well evil. Maybe some some people would say. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. I have to say. I mean, I I think there is. Um, there is quite a wide level of misunderstanding of, of streaming generally, but but you you mentioned at the top that you had more more thoughts on that. So like let's let's hear it. Yeah, look, I think I don't really haven't really spent much time sort of thinking about whether it's unfair or not. I've just spent as much time as possible trying to perfect the ways of of A and Ring to suit it, <laughs> because you can't necessarily beat it, or or and it's in my opinion it's a bit of a waste of a time just sort of being critical of it and fighting against it i would always rather just try and work around it and perfect my releases and my artists in order to to still get the best out of it and make the most for the artists and in turn the record label i mean how would you even define fair in in this instance definitely paying the the the, i think the misconception from the general public is is that the record labels are evil in this situation and that they get they take more than the artists that's that's really not the case for the vast majority of instances. Like m- all the deals we do are 50-50 with the artist. Um, anything we earn from the, um, the the streaming platform gets divided equally with the artist. Once costs, I mean, there been... are there are kind of legacy deals, aren't there? But for example, I mean, I mean, the, the high-profile one at the moment is is Fortet's deal with with Domino, which is being dragged through the courts. And like, I, I don't really, really know how I feel about that, to be honest. But it, but it's 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 certainly true that those legacy deals were, you know, heavily weighted in favour of the label and. You know, in, in, um, and I, I don't know the, the exact legal details here, but I'm presuming there's a clause in those contracts which which alludes to some, you know, hypothetical future technology, and that's how, that's how they calculate royalties for streaming. I don't know. You might know more about that than me. Look, I'm not saying that those deals are right at all, and that's not what I'm referring to in relation to the the, the fact that it's. For the vast majority of small independent record labels that I know, they operate a 50-50 net profit split. For the larger indies, and still for a lot of the larger indies as well, a lot of artists that I manage are on 50-50 deals. Um, I think some of those older deals, and and in the case of Forte, it's a little bit further back for his first couple of albums. Um, 
some of the deals and, and even also still with some of the deals that I have for artists that I manage that are with large indies uh, that there's certain clauses within those deals which arguably are antiquated and unfair however what you have to weigh up when you're doing a deal with one of those record labels is again the exposure that they provide you as an artist and how that sets your entire career it's not just you're not doing that deal just for the percentage royalty that you're getting back on your recorded music you're doing doing it for the fact as i said the credibility the reputation the marketing weight uh that that brings you a press those large indies that are highly sought after enable you to get hundreds more bookings enable you to get lots of other access within the music industry that you wouldn't get on other record labels and those reputation holding indies such as XL, such as domino such as warp such as ninja and i'm not saying that they all do unfair deals they don't i'm just saying that those those record labels that are held in such high esteem as an artist they give you so much and does that make it fair that some of their their clauses are should we say heavily weighted in favor of the record label in terms of either rights ownership or percentages it's questionable it's it's really difficult it's really difficult to 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 weigh that up and it's something i've thought about a lot over the last five years uh in relation to artists that i manage and i'm still actually undecided because i've seen artists that i manage benefit massively from the weight but also i've seen artists really suffer in an unfair way through those clauses would i have not sign the deal or recommended that, that that my artists sign those deals probably not because of the way that it set up their career so it it's a really difficult one to sign to to to, to sort of call on but in kieran's case and fortet's case it's a different scenario altogether because those that that deal that 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 he's discussing openly is 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 antiquated in certain ways in my opinion but that is, yeah, it was a very different time in terms of the music industry. I'm not sure that they would still be. In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure they're not doing those deals anymore. Should should they reverse those deals now? Arguably, yes. Um, would it open a Pandora's box? Definitely, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem that like there would be. Um, um, it would it would open, as you say. It yeah, would make record labels other... go out of business on a major scale. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. I can't argue with that at all. I mean, like, what terms of what you were you were saying prior to that? It's a case of it's a case of like, you know, what is what is the you know the value added essentially yeah. by the signing of a deal, and and this is also true for for major labels, you know, because it's, it's the it's the the a the age old question of like, well. You know, when you sign to a major, it's a it's it's you're, you're gambling basically because there's it's such a huge machine and there's such a huge queue of artists waiting for you know their turn essentially within that organisation and obviously there's a a limited bandwidth um, within any company. Yeah, I mean that's a whole other thing, Paul, which you're absolutely spot on with. I think the difference is with the the large indies that bring such reputation that we're looking at in the you know case in point with Forte and other labels that, that I just mentioned those labels it's not so much about the the access to A&R the queue the are you big enough that those 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 labels bring a huge level of reputation that definitely unquestionably does unlock your career 
Um, going to a major is another different proposition altogether. And, and also there's this whole discussion is, is a record label just a bank? <laughs> because right. essentially they're, they're just, you know, when you're, te- you're dealing with majors and large, ind- large indies, it's just a loan, really. It's, you know, it, it, it's against earnings. You, you know, you're getting huge advances when you're talking and in, going into the majors, but essentially you, you still owe that money via your, your music. So, right. You know, it, it, yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a question of whether what they offer in terms of, and it's, it's really like, you know, in a, in large part, it's down to the quality of their staff, frankly, because Often if you have is. really good people working your, your project, cause that's, you know, that's all it is really. It's a, it's a project which has got to be delivered, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, can they do it? Are they going to do it? But like, I, I do think like the, I mean, the, the bandwidth thing, I mean, also applies to where well, it applies arguably even more to small labels because, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the more re- restricted you are in your resources and whether that's financial resources or, or staff, you know, the more, I guess, competitive it's going to be like, you know, if you're, if you're signing to a label like, you know, like Ninja, for example, who, who are releasing just tons and tons of stuff and doing a great job on, on the majority of it. Like I, I, I certainly know people who, who would be in line to sign to a you know a, a label like Ninja, but express concern that they'd be essentially at the back of the queue, you know, which is something I can I can completely yeah you know, I can I, I see yeah I see the fear there I, I can completely identify with it I, yeah. I understand that, Look, that entirely yes and that that, yeah, that does but I think if you have and that, you know that's that's when a good manager really should 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 play their role in relation to making sure that no matter what happens within said record label the manager should be managing that process of release in terms of press and and everything around it and applying pressure in the right way so that their artist gets the best possible release and yeah we haven't actually talked about you being a manager um and well let's 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 just cover it briefly because when, when did you first take on your um Matt, what did you first take on a management client? Well, again, that was working through with K Seven, um, and the MD was was really keen to get me involved on that on that side of their business. They've they've managed Tricky, and uh, I started working with Mickey Blanco, um, and sort of Anard and helped him with his first album, um, and you know helped him with all of the sort of the features, the deal, the. Um, was that with K Seven as well? The it was. Deal, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we set him up his own label right. uh, within K Seven, oh, right, yeah, okay. um, and and then sort of essentially funded the the production of the album, which ended up doing very well actually. Um, so that was really my sort of start with it, and then I started working with DJ Tennis, um, and just sort of went from there really. And then at a certain point, I started looking at at the whole management process. And actually thought that really, with regards to established producers and DJs, that the traditional model of management, i.e. I'm going to take 15%, it, it, as a manager, is a little bit antiquated as well. And also puts a huge amount of pressure on the artist-management relationship because quite a lot of the time when the, when the artist, i.e. the DJ or the producer, is, has a really established touring career already and you're stepping in to that, um, you can't necessarily justify... 15% of that that amount in my opinion um just because uh, or or 20 or, or, for that matter yeah or, 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 or yeah absolutely or, or any percentage of, of all the shows really um you still have a vital importance to the artist but i i chose to look at it in a different way and was like look what do you need me to do 
what is the strategic let's plan out the next two years of your career i'm going to make sure that i'm overseeing your pr your releases your deals your publishing um let's figure out what that is worth to you on a monthly basis rather than me taking a percentage of everything that you earn um and that sort of removes in a healthy way an element of expectation they can walk away from the deal at any time uh, if they're not happy with the work that you're doing and, and so can you vice versa in terms of if you have an artist that you don't feel is being reasonable about something or is being overly demanding or, or whatever you can also just walk away from the deal as a manager um, and that definitely suited me in relation to being able to work with sort of artists like Loco Dice, I, sw- I switched that sort of deal for, for DJ Tennis. Uh, and then pre-pandemic, I was working with lots of people like Enzo Siragusa, Cassie, um, Steve Bug, lots of sort of big house and techno artists. Um, but also still working with a couple of artists that I had developed from the ground up, like Nathan McKay, who signed to Warp Lucky Me. Uh, and those kind of deals, the traditional deal in those instances does make a lot more sense when you are essentially working f- often for nothing or very little for many years uh, and doing a lot of important deals and shaping the artist's career. I think in those instances, the traditional deal does make sense because over the course of a three to five year period, it, it kind of balances out, you know, you taking a percentage of everything that they earn in relation to the fact that you work for nothing for, for many years it does make more sense. So there is still scope for that deal to make sense, in my opinion, but it, it is normally based around an artist that is is needs development from from ground zero yeah i mean that makes sense i think if um yeah like you say if, if you've contributed to um you know the building of the profile which then eventually gets to those fees then i think it's it's yeah it's absolutely fair enough but but that's a uh, you know that's something which which is you know takes many years really, absolutely for most artists anyway absolutely and yeah i i, I worked with a lot of bigger more established artists where i hadn't been part of that process and um I don't feel it was fair to to take a percentage of, uh, and they probably wouldn't have actually worked with me if it had been that way. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's more of a consultancy role, and and that suits me really well. You can also do individual jobs for individual artists that are only short term for sort of three to five months specific roles that um, also keeps things fresh and interesting. Yeah, well, that I mean, that seems to be like a fairly um, recurring theme in in what you do, man. I mean, it's like there's a lot of stuff you know that we've covered. How would you sum up you know like what where, where where do you want to go in the next few years i guess is the last question i'm just figuring that out at the moment to be honest with you paul uh because i'm I, i'm also doing um i've very recently in the last year started working with a, a, a as you know because i've worked with you for them um working with a, a music ai platform called amy which is really 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 exciting and fascinating and that's now taking up the vast majority of my time and that's sort of really my main focus in in many ways um because i have a team of people around me for, for hours um yeah this i mean just uh tell us a little bit about amy because i mean obviously i know about it but like yeah it's, it's in the process of um really just i mean the, the launch rollout is is uh, it's kind of like we're in the middle of it right yeah exactly it's, so it's a it's a music ai platform that essentially takes an art stems from an artist's music and the ai does the arrangement um and it does it in a very, very cool and intelligent way. It doesn't change any of the stems. Um, it doesn't change any of the individual ideas. It really just arrange, rearranges them. Um, so the ideas that you feed Amy don't have to be fully finished and arranged. It's often better if, if they're not. They can be sort of 32-bar, 64-bar loops, um, fully developed loops. Um, and Amy rearranges it. Now, where it becomes really exciting is when you've got eight to ten tracks worth of stems 
effectively an album's worth of stems and, and, and the AI intelligently arranges that over many hours um, in all the possible combinations that you can think of. It never gets it wrong. It never gets it wrong from a musical perspective. It, it might make combinations, choose combinations that you don't necessarily like as the artist, but um, that's the exciting bit is that the AI is getting better and better and better as, as they're developing it. And yeah, the fun bit has been seeing the artist's reaction to the tech and the software, which was how they hooked me and they, they, they got me to demo it as an artist and I absolutely loved it. Um, so that's really exciting. And, and we've got the, just the reactions from, from artists has been mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed doing uh, doing my work on there, um, and it's um, yeah, there's, there's a load of good stuff. So, I mean, anyone who wants to check that out, I would highly recommend getting hold of the app and um, yeah, just going through it because there's loads and loads of great people on there. Yeah, it's, it's really there's lots of great artists on there, and it is actually really really cool. Cool, man. Well, thanks very much for doing this. Pleasure being the very first guest on the podcast. Um, it's been great chatting absolute pleasure thank you and um, I'll check you soon take care Paul bye so yeah thanks to Will Saul for that really interesting hour and a bit or so of conversation Will's a really interesting guy as you will have noticed and um, he's done so much cool stuff across so many aspects so many areas of the business as it were Um, so yeah that was a great conversation to start off the podcast with. I'm yeah, really happy with how that came out. I just, um, as I mentioned at the top, wanted to finish off today by talking a bit about um, a thread which I posted on Twitter last week. Um, it wasn't uh, kind of a big planned thing. It was uh, largely a, a reaction to um, well, various things that have come out, but in particular, Ski Mask taking his music off Spotify. Um, obviously, we uh, started off the conversation with Will with a question about streaming, and um, that interview was recorded before Christmas, so that wasn't directly uh, influenced by um, the recent events concerning uh that and um obviously i ambushed will with that question so um don't uh don't go in too hard on him online for his unprepared answer although he actually gave i think um was a pretty pretty good answer actually to that question anyway um just regarding the thread i will link to it in the show notes um and i mentioned uh this podcast um in in the last post of the thread um i was intending to talk a bit more about it but it's kind of a, quite a bit of a life of its own and i feel like i need to address it a little bit more fully um here which i will just take the opportunity to do so um so what was the point of the thread well Really, um, I guess the crux of what I was getting at was that um, when a musician or a, you know a label or anyone makes a makes an example of of something, then there really has to be a um, there really has to be a like a really solid reason for making that exception. And my concern with making an example of Spotify, and actually to be honest, with making an example of any of the big streaming services is that the danger is by demonizing one of them, uh, you're effectively endorsing the rest. And, you know, if there is a problem with the streaming model, and there probably is, um, it's not 
like well i think the, the problem is is the model itself and not any one of the existing platforms so um there's a couple of wrinkles to that uh the criticism of spotify is certainly not limited to um its position as a you know as as the biggest streaming platform um the, the thing uh or rather the headline which has dominated a lot of us chat about this recently um has been the investment by the ceo daniel ek in helsing.ai which is a startup in the military sector which plans to use artificial intelligence in battlefield operations um and there's been some i think sort of understandable concern about that um from musicians um and from people in music generally i think there is a bit of misunderstanding though uh concerning that because at the end of the day this is not something that spotify has done as a company and that seems to be a, like a serious point of of confusion um this is something that daniel ek has done on a personal level um this is not a company investment it's the ceo doing something outside of his time working for Spotify. So on that level, it doesn't really add up that Spotify should be uh, singled out um, in this kind of exceptional way because of the actions of one of its employees. Um, that's not totally um, clear to me. Um, in fact, it's, it, it makes no sense at all, particularly in the context of the work of um, some of the other major platforms in particular google which in its capacity as owner of youtube is a very significant player in music and obviously well i mean it doesn't take a, a huge amount of research to discover that google is a very active military contractor so spotify is not an exceptional case in that regard or even comparable you could say i should just point out at this point that first of all i'm not trying to defend Spotify as a as a whole. I mean, I I think there has been some characterization of my position here as as being a defense of Spotify, and it's 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 not. But what I would say about Spotify is that it's competing in a marketplace which um, it's a pretty small player financially speaking. Its competitors have much deeper pockets than it does. Just to put that in perspective, um, time recording, Spotify has a market cap of like roughly forty three billion dollars. And whilst that might seem like a lot, I mean, Apple, which is the, the second biggest, I believe, at the moment, streaming uh, provider, has a market capitalization of about 65 times that of Spotify. So it's 2.8 trillion or so, the market cap. And obviously, obviously, Apple is a much more um, diverse company in where its um, revenues come from. But I mean, it's, you know, this is a... Um, a, a minnow really um, competing against these enormous tech giants. Spotify makes almost no money. Um, the business model is based around uh, spending to accumulate and expand market share, and you know that in itself is is problematic. But <clears throat> Danny Leck is not rich because he's made money out of Spotify profits. He's made money largely because of the appreciation of the share price, which is uh, a phenomenon which is not entirely, or, or you could argue not at all linked to the performance of the company. Um, you know, if you haven't been following the, in my opinion, the most in, you know, important story of the last 10 years, which has been the appreciation of asset prices as a result of central bank policy, 
Um, then, you know, frankly, where have you been? And, you know, the, the ability of Daniel Ek to invest this sort of money um, in a company which he sees fit is is more due to that than due to anything that Spotify has done in the music industry, in my opinion. These things are not straightforward and often not as they seem. So why does the demonization of one of these services effectively endorse the others? Well, it's, I'm sure, not the intention of anyone who picks out Spotify or, or any of the other services in that way. Um, I'm sure the, the vast majority of these people don't um, believe that the streaming model, generally speaking, is, is at a wider level um, a good thing for musicians and for labels. Um, the reality is, though, like when you, when you pick out one of these platforms, the reaction of people is that one of the others must be okay or the others are okay. And this is just a, a rational response to uh, someone with a high profile picking out something um, without making a wider comment about the system as a whole. So, I mean, I've heard, you know, countless times from people, oh, I use Apple Music, I don't like Spotify, or I, you know, uh, listen to music on YouTube and then buy record or go to Bandcamp or whatever. Um, because I don't like Spotify. And, you know, the reality is by doing that, you perpetuate the system in itself and you prop up bigger companies. Um, and particularly in the case of Google, um, companies which are pretty unethical in the way they're run and the way their business models work. I mean, you could certainly say that about um, Apple and Amazon too, but Google is, in my opinion, like the um, the worst of a lot. Uh, and Again, you don't have to dig too deeply into, um, you know, the various um, great pieces of writing on surveillance capitalism and all the rest of it to dig out why I might think that. And therefore, it's pretty clear to me that um, when you make a villain, a specific villain out of one of these platforms, um, it's an endorsement of, of the rest of them. Unless you specifically make clear that your problem is with the system as a whole. So just to address a few of the counter arguments I've had on that thread, um, firstly, that YouTube, uh, as, as I mentioned before, as that YouTube leads to the purchases of physical product or can do or can be a, a kind of music discovery vehicle. And that means that Google is somehow operating outside of the same kind of rule structure as the rest of the streaming services. So it doesn't matter if they pay the absolute worst royalty rate. It's like they're outside the paradigm. I've no doubt that some of the people listening to this podcast will be thinking, well, I check a tune on YouTube and if I like it, I go and support the artist directly on Bandcamp or buy a record or whatever. And therefore, my participation via YouTube is is justified. And, you know, to that, I would I would reply, well, first of all, this is a question of 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 rights, I guess, music wise. So this is the same music um, that is being listened to on Apple or, you know, Spotify or wherever. Um, It's just that the payback on YouTube is much lower. And there were, you know, a plethora of unofficial accounts and all the rest of it. I mean, this is less true now, but certainly in the development of that platform, um, there were hundreds of thousands of um, just random accounts posting music um, for which zero rights were paid, zero zero royalties were paid. Um, and that accounted for, you know, quite a big part of that platform's growth. So why shouldn't royalties be paid to the, the people who made that music? 
the reality is that the number of people who convert from a YouTube stream to a physical product purchase or a Bandcamp purchase are, is vanishingly small. It's hardly anyone. That's the truth of the matter. Um, you know, Bandcamp sales and physical sales just back that up. I mean, if there was even a small percentage of, of conversion, um, you know, that, that part of the business would be you know, much, much healthier. So it simply just doesn't add up to say, oh, well, that's, it's okay because cause I do this. Because the reality is most people don't. Almost everyone doesn't. And by streaming that music on YouTube, you make money for Google. That's the nature of the business model. Just by being on the platform, that makes money for Google. That's how the ads work. That's how the whole business model for that platform works. So just by being on there, you're supporting Google. And as I said before, like that's a military contractor. So if you've got a big problem with Spotify and its militarism, supposed militarism, then, you know, <laughs> your alternative method is, uh, let's, let's just say it's not consistent with your other position. Another area of pushback I had was on the issue or potential issue of um, whataboutery, i.e. that when criticising someone for doing something and pointing out that there might be equivalents elsewhere, you're essentially having a chilling effect on anyone ever doing anything. So I would push back against that pretty strongly because consistency is important. And if you're drawing a red line, if you're making a stand on an issue, then there really has to be a compelling reason to do it. So if there is an obvious example right next to something of an adjacent uh, thing being just as bad or in you know, arguably worse, then your you know, principled stand really loses impact and you, know, you leave yourself open to speculation on what your motives are, really are. And then there's the idea that something must be done, but you know, not every course of action is, is productive and certain things are counterproductive. And, you know, as I mentioned, um, when you demonize one of these platforms, you're endorsing the others. That's as, as I see it anyway. And um, doing something is, you know, not always a positive course of action. And just finally, the issue of music collections was something that was talked about in that um, in the responses to that thread. And this is kind of an interesting one, but I have to say that um, the criticism of, of streaming in this context uh, doesn't hold a huge amount of water for me. Um, you know, when you're comparing like uh, a previous paradigm of people collecting records and CDs, physical items, putting them on a shelf on the wall, you know, having them almost like books, in fact, directly like books is the kind of thing that you have in your house as a sort of, uh, you know, virtue signaling um, aspect, you know, to your to where you live. Um, this is something which is totally tied to the physical item itself it's i mean the music obviously is, is important but if when you take away those physical things the collection isn't there anymore you know so if you don't if you reduce it to just music um that direct signaling uh element disappears and i would argue that the majority of today's music fans certainly the younger ones don't think at all about collecting music in the way that those of us who remember the physical model did. And actually what they're doing is collecting experiences and they're doing that by 
buying tickets and going to shows, going to these big production shows and sharing on social media and all the rest of it. Um, and those are the things that they think about when they think about their music life much more than the collection of a, a physical object which just doesn't exist to them. So um, streaming is not really a, um, a replacement for physical items in, in music. And that kind of brings me on to the final thing that I want to say about this. Um, I've been probably gone on a bit too long already. But um, it struck me that a better way of thinking about streaming might be instead of thinking about it as a replacement for recorded music uh, in the paradigm of the way the industry works, it might be better to think about it as a replacement for the position that commercial radio and radio generally used to hold in the previous incarnation or rather the previous but one incarnation of the music industry model. So just to, to flesh it out a little bit more, um, <clears throat> going back to the 90s or up to around 2000, should we say, the sort of traditional music industry model was basically music, music discovery largely happened through radio, through commercial radio, um, and in some cases, state-run broadcasters. But, you know, let's look at the biggest market, looking at America. Um, it largely happened through commercial radio. Um, performance royalties for radio play were really low. I mean, particularly for labels and and performers, um, almost nothing. I mean, writing uh, writers' royalties is a slightly different thing, so we'll just put that aside for one moment. But in terms of uh, the um, the royalties for a recording artist from radio play was really low. Uh, so basically, your revenue stream was, to a large extent, uh, tied to how many records you sold, how many CDs you sold. So you would make an album. It would cost quite quite a lot of money. Uh, you would probably be in debt to the record label for the costs associated with making that album. And then you would go out on tour in order to sell the record. So your touring might make you some money if you were lucky, but generally speaking, you were breaking even on tour or maybe even spending money in order to drive record sales, drive, or as I said, CDs, because the CD was really the, the ultimate cash cow of the record industry and it was basically a, a massive ripoff in fact to the to the consumer but um or to the fan more accurately so um that's the kind of like the the model of yore that the people um largely people who are criticizing streaming now are kind of harking back to um now there was a a model which came before streaming um, which didn't work at all, and that was the model incorporating downloads as the primary digital uh, sales um, point or sales product or whatever. Now, that was a disaster for everyone involved in music, whether you're an artist or a label or a distributor or whatever. This was total just meltdown in terms of revenue, um, it didn't work at all. And actually, streaming has performed much, much better at generating income for everyone. So that's the context. But as I said, um, I, th I feel like of those three sort of totems, i.e. radio, touring, and recorded music sales, um, 
if you think about those three things, and that is a very, very broad brush, I realise. So we're not getting into specifics of, of electronic and, and um, underground music, the business models for which are slightly different and have been quite a lot more sort of diffuse over the years and probably continue to be so. I'm just talking about the whole, you know, the, the whole thing. So um, why do I think that streaming is a better um, replacement for for radio than, than recorded music? Well, basically, radio has declined in importance massively. It's it's not really significant anymore in terms of music discovery. Um, music discovery happens online uh, and largely it's through these services. So, I mean, YouTube, as we've discussed, fulfills a big function in music discovery. So does Spotify. So do Spotify editorial playlists fulfill a, you know, a, a massive part in people finding new music. And to a large extent, those playlists are picked by editors. So there's a, there's, there is a bit of a um, misconception that algorithms like do everything. Actually, you know, the, the biggest playlist, like a lot of the, the work is done by people. So it's quite similar to the way playlists used to work on radio and the way DJs, individual DJs, had power in breaking records via radio. Um, I think that it's more like that than anything else. The difference is that you get paid a lot more than you ever got paid for radio play. So in that respect, it's much better. Um, and then the other two sort of totems of the industry, touring and record sales, all that's happened there is there's been a switch. So you now make a record in order so that you can tour. And ticket prices have gone through the roof. Um, and you know the money that artists make from touring um, has, as I said, basically switched with what you could have previously expected to earn from re- record sales. Um, you now earn from touring. So I think that's a better way, probably, of thinking about it. And it's certainly a way of thinking about it, which is probably a bit less maddening than just the kind of looking at the headline streaming uh, payback figures, um, which do seem ridiculous and, you know, can have you tearing your hair out. But actually thinking about it in in comparison to radio performance royalties, that's actually, is actually not too bad. So, I mean, that's not a defense of the system. As I said earlier, I think there's big problems with the system as it is, not least in the way it's perceived. Um, But I think thinking about it like that is probably a bit healthier, certainly for our sanity. Anyway, anyway, I've gone on far too long. I've probably n- missed out some stuff that I wanted to say, but um, this has been a bit fairly lengthy monologue, um, and I don't want this podcast to uh, turn into lengthy monologues. So um, I'll leave it there. Um, once again, thanks to Wilson for being the first guest on the pod. Um, it was great chatting to him. Uh, I will link to all his socials in the show notes and there will be a uh, Spotify playlist, ho-ho, with all the tracks on uh, that we refer to as well as the pod itself. So if you're listening on Spotify, you can uh, check that. And um, where other platforms give playlisting, um, we will endeavour to uh, get those set up too but Spotify is the, the easiest one um, <laughs> I say that in, in in full knowledge that I've just been embarked upon what might be seen as a defense of Spotify but like I said I'm not not I'm not a Spotify apologist I, I assure you anyway um, we're going to be running weekly from now on um, 
for the foreseeable future, I hope. Um, as I mentioned, the uh, interview with Will today was recorded before Christmas and the next couple are already in the bag. So um, we will be back next week with a guest who I will announce then. So until next time, thanks for listening. I've been Scuba and uh, I will check you very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.